There is a city that has gotten more snow than Boston this year. <clears throat> Any guesses? Okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so this might be true, maybe Lowell, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, there we go, Buffalo, New York. Thank you. Buffalo, New York has actually gotten more snowfall than us. It all started, I think it was November 18th, when this massive storm came off the lake there. But there's another way that Boston is just not as bad as Buffalo. <laughs> Can I tell you what it is? Our football team has only lost two Super Bowls. I remember 1986, I was a seventh grader. I didn't understand why my science teacher would not let me not turn in my science assignment. You know, it was due on the Monday after the Super Bowl. I was so sad after the Bears totally destroyed the Patriots. And again, in 97, we lost. But Buffalo Bills actually lost four Super Bowls. But the funny thing about this, especially for you Cowboys fans out there, <laughs> is that, the, do you guys know how the sequencing of Buffalo's losing four Super Bowls? It happened four times in a row. Okay, I was, a, I was a freshman, or excuse me, I was in college at the time. I was at Baylor in Texas, and so especially those last two Super Bowls were won by Dallas. So just the Buffalo Bills were the butt of every joke. But you wonder, how does a team make it to the Super Bowl four years in a row and lose every time? And so about five years ago, as the 20th anniversary of these four losses in a row came out, all sorts of sports writers said all sorts of different things. But the one that sticks out, they have all sorts of reasoning for why, you know, they have all sorts of football reasoning as to why they lost. But there's one sports writer that I really appreciated because he got an interview from a Dallas safety, and that guy said, I know exactly why they lost every year. It's because every year they partied so hard the week of the Super Bowl. And it was the senior leadership, I don't mean coaches, I mean the senior players who led that partying. So you'd think after the first year, they lose the Super Bowl, and they'd say, all right, maybe we should not be clubbing every night of the week until dawn before we go to the Super Bowl. You'd think after the second year, maybe they'd figure out, maybe the third or maybe the fourth, but they just never figured it out. Buffalo Bills. But of course, the thing is, we're all the Buffalo Bills, aren't we? What I mean is we all do stupid things that get the same stupid results every time, and we still do them, don't we? So what is God's hope for us today? Is there hope from his word? Is there something he has for us instruction-wise and hope-wise regarding our own Buffalo Bills experience? Of course, the answer is yes. Turn with me to Joshua 7 and 8, and let's unpack how we get free from our Buffalo Bills syndrome. Joshua 7 and 8. We're going to do some highlights today. And again, let me give you a little context. God is executing his secret rescue plan, okay? We need help. Humanity needs help. The first way that he starts executing his secret rescue plan is by saying, Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm going to give you land, and through you, I'm going to make you a great nation. And through you, other nations will be blessed. Israel goes to Egypt, spend 400 years there. They come back to the promised land. God raises Moses up as a leader, and now the the leadership has passed from Moses to Joshua. Joshua is now coming into the land that God promised Abraham hundreds of years ago. Now, the other context I want to give is Joshua 
crossed the Jordan River in the same way that Moses crossed the Red Sea. So he's got this seal of approval on him. Another thing that happens is Joshua takes Jericho in a very unusual way. So that was, that was kind of Brian's message last week that got snowed out, was that in an unusual way, requiring unusual dependence on God, Joshua does have his first victory with Jericho. Now, they're on a roll here. They're feeling good. And God says, let's go to Ai now, a city called Ai. That's how we can pronounce it. That's a good way to pronounce it. It's A-I, I. If you want to be really intense, you can say A-I-A, but that's too annoying, so we'll just say I. I want to show you where this is. I think, do we have a map? As you can see from Jericho, where they get to. Just about eight kilometers northwest. Okay, so you see Jericho there in the gray. They took that. They had crossed the Jordan, took Jericho. Now God says, go to I. Now, unbeknownst to Joshua, a man named Achan had done what was forbidden. When God said, I'm going to give you Jericho, he said, you're going to destroy everything except silver, gold, bronze, and iron. But there's a man named Achan who saw a couple things. He saw a really shiny coat from Shinar. Shinar is Babylonia. Babylonia is Iraq. So he saw this cool coat, said sweet jacket. I want to keep that. He saw about five pounds of silver and about a pound and a quarter of gold. And he said, I'm going to keep those things. Joshua didn't know this. So now Joshua says, you, I'm going to send some spies to I. He sends some spies to I. They come back. They say, easy peasy lemon squeezy. We got this thing. Joshua sends 3,000 people, but the 3,000 men get routed. And in fact, 36 of them die. And now we pick up the story. They've lost this battle at I, and Joshua is all Verklempt. Is that a good word? He's all verklempt. All right, let's see. Let's pick it up at, I think, 8. Joshua 7. Let's start at 6. Okay, Joshua 7, verse 6. <clears throat> it's hard to read up here sometimes. Okay, uh, yeah. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Okay, listen to the despair here. Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan, right? We should have just chilled out on the east side of that river. That would have been enough for us. Oh, Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth? And what will you do for your great name? Right, he's starting to freak out because, remember, all these city-states that you saw there, they're all run by different kings. They're hearing what God's doing. They're scared of these guys, but now Joshua's thinking, we've lost our mojo here. What's going to happen? Now, this is what God says, verse 10. Let's keep going. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. In other words, things that were, things were either to be destroyed or all that gold, silver, bronze, and iron was to be brought to the treasury of the Lord. It was not to be kept by anyone. So he says, they kept some of the devoted things. I'm picking up in verse 11 here in the middle. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their heads, excuse me, their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction, right? In other words, they've taken things, they've become worthless here. I will be with you no more. Ouch. 
ouch, God, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. 13, get up, Joshua, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things, right? There's things that belong to me in your midst. So Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Let me just repeat that last part right there. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Actually, can we all read that together out loud? That last part of 13, you cannot. Let's read it together. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Ooh, ouch. So the message here could not be more clear for us. To the degree that we are clinging to idols is the degree that we're forfeiting revival, kind of personally. To the degree that we cling to an idol is the degree that we forfeit the success of God, God's planned success in our life. Isn't that intense? Can I just say it again? To the degree that we cling to an idol is the degree that we are forfeiting revival. And I'm not just talking about corporate God coming to the land, although I do mean that also. For sure, the problem here in in the North Shore is not so much all those people out there. The issue starts first with the church. We need to get our hearts cleaned up. I'm just talking about you moving forward in God, right? Remember the situation here. God wants to give Joshua this land. He wants to give him the land, but he will not when there's idolatry in the heart. And it's the same for you and me. To the degree that we cling to an idol, we can't receive all that God has for us. I like what the psalmists say. And this is so powerful. This is Psalm 38 and 39, a couple of verses from here. Psalm 38, 3 says, There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. When God's mad at us, it hurts. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. Have you ever felt that way? You're aware of your sin and you just are like, yuck, this is gross. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. It's like we've lost the Super Bowl four years in a row because we keep partying too much, right? Same thing. Our sin just gets too much. 17 and 18 of of Psalm 38 says, For I'm ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. Right? We have idols. We get aware of it by the Holy Spirit. It becomes overwhelming. 39.11 says this, When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Wow. It's intense. Sometimes when we're holding on to our idols, it's killing us. And, and, And like a moth, uh, uh, it's things that are dear to us are consumed. All mankind is a mere breath. But as we often quote here, we know Romans 2.4 says that it's God's loving kindness that leads us to repentance. Right? It's his loving kindness. He exposes the idol so that we can get a chance to repent. Now, idolatry is such a religious word, so I want to talk about it a little bit. What, what are we talking about? When we talk about idolatry, what is it? So I'm going to give a stab at a definition. There are lots out there, but I'll just say... An idol is anything from which we derive life or meaning or belonging apart from God. An idol is anything that we depart or that we um, receive like meaning and identity and belonging from that's apart from God. And remember, it's all about a substitute, right? We shall have no other gods before us. Why? Because God doesn't want us to have a God? No, he wants us to have the right God. So idolatry is always just a, um, it's, a, it's an almost, it's a fake, it's a phony. 
So when I think of idolatry, I think of three categories. I think of people, power, and pleasure. So let's think about these for a little bit. People, power, and pleasure. There's people that can become idols to us. There's a need for power and control that becomes idolatrous. And there's also just pleasure that can become extremely idolatrous to us. All right? Let's start with people. Everyone say people. Right? The thing is, remember, we're talking about a phony. We're all made for relationship, right? We're all made for intimacy. We're not made to be isolated. But idolatry happens when a person just becomes an object of worship to us. Paul really teases this out in Romans 1. He says that we have worshipped created things instead of the creator. And so I think how it happens among us kind of 21st century folks a lot whether it's opposite gender or same gender, oftentimes we find ourselves enmeshed is kind of the psychological word with other people. We get our sense of self from someone else. We need to be with that person ever so much. And, and sometimes it takes the form of when it's opposite gender, it can be the form of a couple that's really emotionally connected, but they have no commitment. You know, maybe they're just dating, but they're acting like a married couple with how they're emotionally connected because we're given to people worship. We get our sense of identity from someone else, right? And that's where we we cross over into idolatry. So that's some of the people part. Let's talk about the power part. Remember, we're talking about a a fake here. God gave us dominion. He says in Genesis, I want you to rule. And we know from the arc of the scriptures that we are made to rule, that actually we could think of our whole earthly life here as preparation for our heavenly life, and we will rule with Christ. We are co-heirs. So Jesus, God is not holding on to power. He's really wanting to share it. But the issue is, do we do it in submission to Jesus or not? So control, you know, we were made for domain, the dominion, excuse me. But when we try to control people and we try to control circumstances outside of kind of the word of God to us, that's when it becomes idolatrous, okay? Some of you have been on this journey with me for quite some time. I really enjoy learning. If I had limitless finances and limitless time, I would get my MBA right now and I'd get my MDiv. I really just want those two things. But where that becomes idolatrous to me is where I think that I got to make it happen, right? Even though I don't have the finances for it, I want it now. Even though I don't have, you know, I've got small children, I can't sacrifice my wife who's sitting on the stage there. Why would I miss relationship with my wife and with my kids right now for a stinking degree that when I'm on my deathbed, I will say, wow, can you look at my MBA? And then, you know, (laughs) my kids hate me. I I don't want that, right? But I'm just letting you in. I'm trying to be practical with you that we want to control things. We want things to go our way. And yet God's saying, hey, if you'll give it away, I'll take care of you, right? Power, control, we give it away. Because then what's great is when God does give it back to us because he wants to give us dominion, then we receive it. It's joyful, right? See, Steve Nelson, I want my MBA from Harvard. It's probably not going to happen right now. Steve Nelson works at Harvard Business School. Thank you, God. It's okay. (laughs) You know? We'll smash that idol right here. All right. Third one, pleasure. Okay, pleasure. Look at the world that God has given us, and it's we see that God has made us for incredible pleasure. Okay? Just look at the number of nerve endings that God has put in all of your reproductive organs, or as I say to my kids, the diaper area. Okay? In your diaper area, there's so many nerve endings. What is God speaking through that except great pleasure? But it's when we seek that pleasure outside of his boundaries that it becomes idolatrous, right? Look at the food that we eat. It's so good. 
God could have done things way differently, but he's made us for pleasure because he's good. The Bible says, for goodness sake, wine makes the heart glad. Can I quote that from up here and not get stoned? Okay, but it also says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So God's made pleasure. He has, he's the author of pleasure. He's the most pleasurable guy around, I'll say. But the issue is, if it becomes, if it owns us, if that pleasure, whether it's lust or food or whatever, if it owns us, then we've crossed over into idolatry. I think you're getting the picture here, okay? It all started in the Garden of Eden. Power, people, pleasure. It all started in the Garden of Eden, and we've been being duped by idols ever since, right? How did it happen? People. Eve decided that what Satan, the serpent, this personality thought was more important than what God thought. So she gives way to people. Adam decides that what Eve says is more important. I'm going to get my identity through Eve, not through God. People. All right? Power. Eve says, I want to be like God. That sounds good. That's the deal that Satan said. I'll be like him. I want to control this thing my way. But it's a phony, right? We can't. And then pleasure. Eve said, man, that fruit looks good. <laughs> it looks yummy. And it probably was. But it's outside of God's plan. God wants to give us pleasure the way he wants to. So we've been being duped, all right? So the problem with idolatry is that you can't have idols and enjoy or obey God simultaneously. Clinging to an idol forfeits revival. Clinging to an idol forfeits revival. Listen to what the disciple John said in 1 John 2.15. He says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, now listen, for power, pleasure, and people here. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, which can be translated pride of possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world's passing away, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here's another little clue we get into idolatry, right? It just doesn't last, right? Things may feel good when we've got our power, our pleasure, and our people in our clutches for a little bit, but it doesn't last. But he who does God's will abides forever. And then I think probably the most profound scripture, one-liner on idolatry that the Bible has to offer, it's from Jonah, chapter 2, verses 8. Jonah's in a tough spot. He is in the belly of this whale, really thinking through things. And he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That's NIV. Isn't that good? Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I know it's true for me when I cling to this lust or that idea or that whatever, I forfeit grace that could be mine. Clinging to an idol truly means we forfeit a revival in God. Hope's coming, just so you know. (laughs) There's good news in this. Before we get to the good news, I I want to just share another little piece here from verse 15. I I didn't ask for verse 15, but let me just put this up here. This is um, Joshua 7, verse 15. And, um, you know, this is intense for us, 24th century readers. But basically, God says this. God says, hey, you're going to have to burn. Whoever did this, you know, we'll find out that it's Achan. But whoever took this devoted stuff, whoever hid the gold and silver and shiny jacket, they're going to have to be burned with fire. It says this, because, this is God speaking, because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. And that word outrageous, thank you very much, thank you. That word outrageous 
It has to do with folly and sin. And the, the, when it's used in the other places in the Old Testament, it has to do with either someone who um, has committed rape or it has to do with someone who is prostituting themselves. In other words, it's kind of that feeling like, like ooh, that's bad. <laughs> you know, Buffalo Bills, four Super Bowls in a row, that's bad. Or like, I just remember, I'm, I'm not condemning anyone because I could get stones thrown at me. But you remember there a few years ago that some, there was some representative from New York. He was a government official, but he was caught sexting, you know? He's a grown man who's sending naked pictures of himself to people. And you just go, ooh, you know, not good. That's what, that's what God's saying here. What Aiken did was outrageous. It was, that's weird. You <laughs> know, that's not good. And, of course, the truth is all of our idolatry is, that's bad. It's all like that because it's all so short of what God actually wants to give us, right? All of our idolatry is, that's weird, or that's gross. It's outrageous in light of the fact that God wants to give us great pleasure. He wants to give us dominion, power. He wants to give it to us, and he wants to give us people. He wants to have us be in relationship, but just, again, a good psychological word there is he wants us to be interdependent with people, not overly dependent or fiercely independent. Okay, so as far as the story goes, um, uh, so Joshua, you know, God does this kind of amazing thing by, by finding by Lot that it was Achan, sad, Achan gets stoned, and his family gets burned, everyone but his wife. We don't know if he was a widower or if maybe just the wife ran away. I don't know. Somehow she's spared, but his kids are not. It's awful. So the thing is, they take care of the issue. That's the main point is, they deal with the idolatry. And now we get to Joshua 8, 1 and 2. Here's where we start to turn a corner this morning. So Joshua 8, 1 and 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, don't fear and don't be dismayed. Right? Because of idolatry, Joshua and the people have been afraid and dismayed. Isn't that the same with you and me? When we're sometimes caught in our sin, we're just afraid and dismayed. But but God's saying, hey, dealt with, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you. Okay, not 3,000 this time. Take all of them. And arise, go up to Ai. See, I've given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, his land, and you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. We don't know specifically what he did, but clearly they had victory. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Ooh, this is interesting. New word of the Lord. You can keep some of the animals. They weren't supposed to keep them in Jericho, but here in Ai they can lay an ambush against the city behind it. And so... Let me summarize here. God gives Joshua a military strategy. He says, hey, draw out the people from the city. Take 25,000 of your guys from the north. Draw them out. They'll leave the city. And then from the west, I'll do this to you guys. From the west, 5,000 guys, do an ambush. Come to the city, burn it. So twenty-five, or so the guys from I who are out there in the field, they'll look back in their city. They'll see that it's, it's uh, up in smoke. And then whoosh, you guys get them. That's exactly what happens. They get them. All right? Victory. Success in God's purposes, uh, revival, you know, whatever the analogies we want to draw here. They let go of their idol, and they were able to move on in the purposes of God. So again, the message from Joshua 7 and 8, and then actually they have this, excuse me, they actually have this great worship. They have like World Mandate East. They have um, World Mandate Ebal and Gilgal. Okay, they go to some mountains um, a few kilometers north, and they have a great worship time. They renew the covenant. They go over the word of God, everything that God spoke to Moses. They, they have their Gilgal, Ebal, world mandate, and it's wonderful. 
So again, the message from Joshua 7 and 8 can't be more clear. If we cling to idols, we forfeit revival. If we cling to what God doesn't have for us, we forfeit our opportunities to move up in God. So that's intense, isn't it? So the question is how? What do we do about it? And this is the good news of Jesus. Okay, the good news. We can overcome idols. We can let go of them. We're not stuck in idolatry because Jesus wasn't, all right? To wit, I want to call to mind Jesus' temptation. It's in Matthew and Luke and Mark, but let's look at Matthew chapter 4, okay? Watch for people, power, and pleasure, and watch how Jesus, he's able to reject every idol that comes his way, and guess what? You and me are in Christ. Everyone say, in Christ. Okay, Paul won't let that phrase go, the Apostle Paul. He says, you and me are in Christ, and so because we're in him, because he had victory over idols, we can too. Jesus is also our deliverer. He knows that we're the Buffalo Bills. He knows that we keep partying every night, all night, for the whole week, before the Super Bowl, lose the Super Bowl, over and over again, and no one gets smart. He knows we're the same condition left to ourselves. So watch this. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and nights, he was hungry. Don't you love biblical understatement? Thank you, Matthew. And the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Pleasure. Jesus was made to eat. He's a human. He's been fasting for four days. He sure could use some bread. It would probably taste really good right now. But Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. All right? You and I can overcome the pleasure addiction, the pleasure excess, whatever it is for you and me, because Jesus did. And he lives inside you. 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he that lives in you than he who's in the world. And that's this guy right here, the devil. Okay, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. Ooh, watch out. Satan's using scripture. He's getting religious on us. We get confused when churchy things are happening. And... Oh, not just one. Good job, devil. Let's get two scriptures. On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Power. Okay? The devil's appealing to Jesus's power thing. Now, does Jesus have power? Yeah. Does he have all the power in the world? At this moment, does he? Could he do this very thing? Absolutely. But Jesus knows that exercising power outside of that relationship with the Father, would be idolatrous, right? The Gospel of John over and over again says how Jesus was in the Father, right? Same for you and me, which is also why we can't put standards on each other, right? What is idolatrous for one person is not for another at times. So everyone's soul is made up a little bit differently. So here, of course, Jesus could, could jump down and be like, see that? That was awesome. He could have levitated for everyone. That would have been awesome, right? But he wasn't going to do it because he, he wasn't going to be idolatrous. He wasn't going to do it because the devil was asking him to. He, was, he restrained his power greatly. Okay? Now let's go to people. Jesus said to him, uh, so, sorry, this is the same one. Again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He keeps quoting from Deuteronomy. Jesus knows the scripture. All right. Now we get to people. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and probably all time, right? 
all the people on planet Earth and all of their wonderful multicultural glory. I mean, the Earth is a wonderful place with all the nations. Man, we prayed for Costa Rica today. I'd love to go there. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. In other words, people, right? Jesus, is Jesus going to get worship from all tribes, tongues, nations? Yeah, he is. But the way he did it mattered. He could have done it this way, or he could do it the God way, which was through crucifixion. It's the same for you and me, okay? God's often calling us to something, but we need to do it the God way. Sorry, let me put it with people again. God wants you to have good relationships, but you got to do it his way. You can't be demanding things from people and, and uh, you know, demanding that you get all your identity needs met by someone else. It just doesn't work that way. And Jesus is able to handle it. He says, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. We, too, are given help from God in this struggle against idolatry. The great thing about Jesus is, if you notice also, a great lens to look at the New Testament or at the Gospels is Jesus was always nailing people at their place of idolatry, right? Pharisees, power, self-righteous. Jesus was always nailing them right there. Disciples. The mother of James and John said, hey, Jesus, is it okay if uh, my sons be your number one, your number two? Jesus says, uh, well, it's not up for me to decide, but they're going to suffer with me. How's that? You know? I mean, the idol was power, and I want to be in this great thing, and let's be with Jesus. It's going to be awesome, right? Mm. Jesus nails that down to size real quick, right? What about the would-be disciples, like the rich young ruler? What's his idol? Yeah, he's got lots of cool stuff. Jesus gets right at him. And that's what Jesus is doing with you and me all the time. What's the Holy Spirit is doing right now? He's after you and me. He's after our idols and saying, hey, let him go. Let him go. All Christians do this when we come to Jesus. The Apostle Paul, he had a lot of affection for the church that he planted at Thessalonica. And when he was writing to them, he said this. He says, hey, the whole world knows about you guys. He says, people report concerning... um, you guys, the kind of reception that we had among you and how you Thessalonians turned from God, yeah, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In other words, as Paul is remembering how the Thessalonians came to Christ, he says, I remember how you guys turned from idols. He didn't just say, you guys prayed a great prayer of salvation. That was awesome. You guys had a really charismatic worship service. Good job. You had Matt Schwabauer drinking Dunkin' Donuts, leading your worship service. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> I don't know how you do. Is it coffee or water in there? It is water. Okay, I was concerned for you. As you were drinking coffee, I thought, this is, here goes caffeinated worship. All right. So that's not what Paul was saying. <laughs> he was saying, harbor, people, Thessalonians, you turn from idols to serve the living and true God. And so we can too. And what I'm going to invite us to do here in a second is, I'm going to invite you as you take communion, is basically to lay down, just in your heart before Jesus, you lay down the idol that God's been pounding with you, pounding you with already, and you receive Jesus instead. That's how you overcome, okay? How you overcome is you lay down the idol and you pick up Jesus. Maybe it's your career, maybe it's a vocation, maybe it's a person, maybe it's this, that, or the other, I don't know, but you lay down the idol and you pick up Jesus as you take communion, okay? I'm going to invite Matt and his Dunkin' Donuts water and the whole worship team back up. 
I'm going to invite all of you to stand up. I'm going to lead us through a little repentance here, a little exercise, and then we will take communion. Gluten-free will be to my right, okay? And there's a large chalice that only gluten-free glutina should be dipped in. And um, otherwise, we have matzo bread for you. So actually, let's have those ushers come forward who are going to serve the communion. And let's pray. Clinging to an idol, forfeits revival. Aren't you tired of forfeiting revival? Aren't you tired of forfeiting that grace? Jesus can help us today. He can. Okay. Just quick three steps here, and then I'll lead us into communion. First is, if God is highlighting something that has become idolatrous to you, then the first thing you do is just confess. Tell someone this is what it is. I don't know about you. Sometimes I realize how silly it is that something's become an idol to me, and I just share Second thing is you need to disengage from it. And if it's a person, you may have to create boundaries with that person. If it's a power thing, you need to yield control. If it's pleasure, you need to know that Jesus delivers. That brings us to the third part, which is sometimes you need a team. Okay, if you find yourself stuck in idolatry, Buffalo Bills, over and over again, you're losing the same battle, then you might need a team to help you. That's where you invite other people, trusted friends, and say, hey, can you help me with this? Okay, so we confess, we disengage, We get a team to help us. Boom. Idolatry free by the grace of Jesus.